Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Lindsay Miller. Lindsay is a kids mindfulness coach, mindfulness educator, and host of the Stress Nanny Podcast. She's known for her suitcase of tricks and playful laugh. When she's not playing catch with her daughter or rollerblading on local trails with her husband, you can find her using her 20 plus years of child development study and mindfulness certification to dream up new ways to get kids excited about deep breathing. Having been featured on numerous podcasts, platforms, and publications, Lindsay's words of wisdom are high impact and leave a lasting impression wherever she goes. In the episode, Lindsay shares the three keys of mindfulness, how mindfulness differs from meditation, how to incorporate mindfulness strategies with toddlers and teenagers, and more. Before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Lindsay. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Brooke, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I love what you're doing, and I think this is going to be such a fun conversation. It's as I'm looking at you, our our listeners aren't going to see you because I only published the audio, but you have such a beautiful setup there, and you look like a legit podcaster versus me in my closet. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I do appreciate this little microphone here for sure. (laughs) It looks cool. And I like the background you have with the bookshelf. I don't know if you know, but um, during COVID, there was this Instagram, I think it was channel where people would post pictures of Zoom backgrounds and rate them. And it was hilarious because, you know, everybody on the news and, you know, some people had these really elaborate, awesome backgrounds. And then some people looked like me in a closet, but, uh, that's how I, I started out too. So I, get okay. it. <laughs> I mean, it's soundproof, right? It's like, yeah, totally. you can't, you can't beat the acoustics in here for sure. Well, I'd love if you could start out by telling us 
a little bit about yourself and specifically what led you to become a kids mindfulness coach. Yeah. So my name yeah, is Lindsay. I have run and started the business called The Stress Nanny for a while now. And The Stress Nanny is designed to help kids and families manage stress with mindfulness. Um, and one of the things that got me into that was recognizing the value of mindfulness in my own life. And I didn't come to mindfulness till I was in my mid 20s. I was navigating like infertility, I had experienced, you know, some grief, had loss going on. And we were having some marriage struggles as a result of the infertility, you know, it was just like a whole stew of stuff. And I really needed some tools that would help me through it. And so when I, you know, connected with my therapist, we started to work on some different mindfulness techniques, I realized there was so much here that would have been helpful for me for years, right? Like navigating teenage years, navigating, you know, middle school friendship drama, all those things like could have definitely been, um, easier experiences with mindfulness. So my degree is in child development. I had, you know, worked in different settings with kids and I started to recognize the need for like a really specific set of tools that kids could implement. And when we're teaching kids mindfulness, we need to do it in a more playful way, right? We, we don't necessarily need them to sit still to practice it. And so in our own life and in, in our family, I had been teaching my daughter these tools since she was little. Because like I said, we once we got her here, we navigated a few more years of struggle with different things. And I needed like some really easy ways to explain to her what was going on for us to talk about like the big emotions that were flying around our house, you know, and this was a way mindfulness was a way for us to kind of just create a sense of stillness amidst chaos. And so as I've reflected on the benefit of those um, tools, and then had the opportunity to start teaching them to kids, I noticed how it really changed family life, like it created this, again, sense of calm amidst whatever stresses they were facing, and allowed kids to move through not only their individual developmental hurdles, you know, times in their lives when they were struggling, or uh, you know, emotionally overwhelmed or having, you know, trouble academically at school, like it helped in those specific things. And then it also created these really powerful relationships where communication could flourish within the family. And when we're under duress, those are things we, we all need, right? But mm -hmm. especially kids. So it was kind of a meandering path through like a degree where I knew I wanted to work with kids, some struggles of my own where I had to accumulate tools, and then like the synthesis of the two. That's so cool. I love those moments in life when you're in your late 20s or 30s or whatever, and you have these aha moments of, yeah. I mean, you, I mean, mindfulness, right? You thought, why didn't yeah. I have this toolbox yeah, exactly. since middle school or even elementary school yeah. or even before that when something is so life-changing? And so yeah. that's great. I guess it's always good if you think about it. Well, at least I learned about it now, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, and I think in your work, it's the same, right? Like we may not come to nutrition awareness, like at an early age, and we probably would have benefited from it, you know, totally. from the get go. But if we can, if we can start to care for ourselves more intentionally at any point in life, it's a, it's a gift. Totally. Yeah. I used to teach high school and middle school for a little short time, but I taught high school for the majority of my teaching career, which was 12 years. And the kids were, I worked in all boys school. So mostly lots of athletes, very active boys, you know, in their yeah. teenage years, and they would go to health class and not learn anything about nutrition. I would flip through the health book and, you know, they were just eating 
disgusting stuff that teenagers eat and, you know, grabbing chips and a Gatorade for lunch and then going to these hardcore football or whatever practices. And I would just think, you know, everything that I learned too late in life about nutrition, (laughs) what if these kids were actually learning that in these health classes that they're sleeping through and, you know, doing the little exercises in the book that are dumb and from the eighties or whatever, these outdated health books. Um, I mean, how, how much of a gift that would be if we were giving kids these tools in school. But I mean, I guess that's a, that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing we can talk about another time. Um, but I would love if you could share when you say mindfulness, just first of all, what does that even mean? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and people have different ways of describing it. The way that I describe things is going to be really, really simple. And I find that adults and kids can connect with the really, really simple. And a lot of times the adults like the simple explanation even better than the more complex one. So the way I define mindfulness is being present by knowing what's going on inside of you, knowing what's going on outside of you and making a choice on purpose. Hmm. I have to let that sink in for a second. Okay. I like it. Yeah. So, you know, because mindfulness encompasses a lot of um, different things, but ultimately if we can tune into like our emotional state, our mental state and our physical state. So knowing what's going on inside of us, those three things are kind of um, foundational, you know, like a foundational awareness, right? So if we can know those things, just take a quick scan and sort that out and then understand like what, where, what context am I in right now? Am I at school? Am I at home? Are there like big deadlines or projects that are kind of weighing on me? Am I feeling like free and open and connected? You know, what, what's the, the tenor of my relationships and my environment right now? And then we synthesize that information, right? In order to make a choice about what the next best thing is for us. Hmm. And so it sounds like a lot to kind of sort through, Mm -hmm. but what happens is the more you practice, the better you get at it. And the more the parts of your brain that monitor those things get, you know, the neural connections strengthen And then we find ourselves being able to take this really quick, like internal assessment, external assessment. Okay, this is what I need to do. This is best. Okay, interesting. So it's if I'm I'm just trying to process this myself. So it's basically what I'm feeling. And then the outside of myself, it's sort of the context, Uh external context that I'm feeling these things in. Exactly. And then the choice I make moving forward. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I like that choice you're making part two, because Mm -hmm. it implies there's action involved because I think a lot of times mindfulness seems like this kind of passive inactive, just sitting and staring at nature. Or I don't know, something that's not, not tangible to me. And I like, I like Mm -hmm. action, (laughs) things that are tangible and I can do something. And so that has kind of put me off before of, I don't want to just kind of sit and visualize or you know, I, I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, no, it totally does. And a lot of times we think of meditation and mindfulness as interchangeable. And I help um, train mindfulness educators. So I'm a, a faculty member at an international mindfulness school. And without fail, the, you know, the trainees that come to us, they tend to have this opinion that like, we can just say mindfulness and meditation, and it's the same thing. And oftentimes, when we when we talk through it, and they realize that meditation is a practice that facilitates mindful living. 
then it's like it flips a switch for them because they recognize like, oh, there's a point to meditation actually. And it's that like I can show up in my life with this awareness, like increased awareness of myself and my environment, which then leads to like quicker and more skillful decision making. And so as as we walk them through the process of becoming teachers, it's fun to see how their understanding of mindfulness kind of shifts into this more action oriented everyday life, like live more fully and better as a result of, you know, your practices. But mindful living is really about about action. Hmm. Based on what you just said, can you have mindfulness without meditation? Or do you have to have some type of meditative practice as well? Um, I'm a big fan of mindfulness, no matter what. I think meditation really enhances it significantly. Um, And because again, we're talking about neural connections, right? And so one of the benefits of mindfulness is that you can take that quick assessment of what's going on. And meditation, what it does is it helps you know which thoughts to pay attention to, because you know which ones to ignore. Like, you know, the ones like the ruminations that you have, the self-doubt that's like constantly in your thought river. You're, you're just like familiar with all those things to the point that you can ignore them. And you just kind of know that's the background to most of your thoughts. So then the novel thoughts or the interesting ones or the ones that are really present moment, like this is what's actually going on, those kind of like light up more in your brain when you meditate because you already are familiar with the ruminations that are just free flowing all the time. So in some ways, like meditation really enhances mindful living, like in in many ways, right? But with kids, especially, it's important for us to help them develop that part of their brain. And the kids aren't super adept at sitting still for 30 minutes to meditate. Right. And so that's where like my work comes in and we think of other ways and playful, creative tools to use that help work that part of the brain, you know, help that like metacognition part come online so that kids can be in a space of mindful living without having to sit on their cushion for 30 minutes. If they do, that's fantastic. But um, there are other ways we can kind of tune into that part of their brain and give it some exercise. It sounds like meditation then just kind of helps you become a more, more efficient with mindfulness. Okay. So that's, and it's a quick, yeah, it's like next level. If you want to just, you can dive into mindfulness today. And then if you find that it's really working for you and you're loving it, then you could maybe down the road, introduce the meditation practice and just see how that can enrich your mindfulness practice. But you don't have to meditate basically. <laughs> yeah. That- yes, you don't. Okay. I mean, I still, I, I teach a mindfulness for grownups class and we talk about how, you know, just mindful living every week we do a different mindful living principle. And, um, it's funny because some of the, some of the ladies in there have been in there for a year and a half, almost two years. And they, they're like, some of them just starting to meditate you know, because they're like put off by it. It's not comfortable to them. It feels like woo woo or kind of spiritual in someone else's tradition. And they're not sure kind of what to make of it. But the ones that have started their practice and really like have, um, you know, dove into it, they are now in the class being like, okay, you guys just need to do it. I know it's weird. I know you don't want to. I know that's hard to sit still, but it makes a big difference. You know, and I've been saying it makes a big difference, but we all come to it when we're ready for it, you know, but yes, mindfulness, you can start right now. Um, your practice is definitely going to be enhanced if you meditate, but you can be mindful no matter what. I'd love to know your thoughts also on, since we're talking about meditation, I've interviewed other experts about meditation, about mindfulness, and some meditation experts have said meditation doesn't even have to be sitting down. It could be just 
introducing any practice as being more meditative. So even stirring a soup or going for a walk without any type of technology and just paying attention to your steps or sitting on the couch and tuning into your breath for even just a Mm -hmm. minute or two. And so do you agree that there are these more approachable ways to get into meditation? Yeah, 100%. 100%. And I I think that's especially important to recognize with kids because they can glean a lot of the benefits of meditation and definitely the benefits of mindfulness. But like, it doesn't have to look like them, again, sitting on a cushion and breathing. And I'll still encourage them to breathe because I think it's a good practice. Um, And I think it's like good prep. But I have a bunch of ways that I help them you know, to become more mindful. And some, some, like you're saying, like notice like, how does your stuffed animal feel right now? Does, is that rough or is that smooth? Or, you know, one of the kids that I taught several years ago, his mom was just telling me the other day, he was just reminding me about the times when he would sit on the calls with you and you would encourage him to like eat his snack mindfully. Because we would, you know, we'd be practicing and he'd be hungry. So he'd be having a snack and be like, okay, let's work with that. Like, what is your, what is the, what does that salad taste like? And he'd, you know, he'd taste it and really just tune into it. And then, you know, just think through like this texture, this taste, this smell, and just really be fully present with what was going on around him. And I think that's the key. Mm, That's, that's really cool. Do you find that a lot of families or people in general are kind of hesitant to implement mindfulness strategies because maybe they think it is meditation or kind of woo woo or what's your experience with that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's definite hesitation. I think that again, like you mentioned, there's, there's this element of like, this is a foreign practice. I'm not sure what to do with it. Um, even though it's getting more and more mainstream and there are more and more, um, research-based studies that are showing, you know, so much benefit and value. There are also just, you know, long held ideas about what meditation is or what mindfulness is and how it works. There's also a tendency for adults to think that it's only for adults. Um, when in all actuality, kids teach us about mindfulness all the time, right? Like if you've ever stopped with, you know, a two-year-old to look at a dandelion or an ant, like that's mindfulness, right? Like they're just fully immersed in what is going on. And so what I find often happens is we, we kind of like educate them out of mindfulness. And instead of doing that, if we can just help them maintain the practice, we don't even have to teach it because kids are really good at it. We need to avoid like unlearning it with them. like. <laughs> And then we need to facilitate experiences to help them develop that awareness into their later elementary years, into their middle school years and into their high school years so that the the self-awareness that they cultivate and that ability to be fully present doesn't leave them. Mm. So that's one thing I see. And then also, I think parents sometimes have a hesitation of teaching kids because they don't feel like their um, understanding of the practice is complete. And they want to kind of learn it all before they teach it. But the trouble is that a lot of parents right now see the value of mindfulness for their kids and for themselves. But because they're still learning it, it's hard to, te- you know, it's hard to teach something that you're just learning. So that's one of the spaces that I come in and I kind of offer support for the kids as the parents cultivate their mindfulness practice. I support them in their practice by giving them some tools and tips on how to, you know, make mindfulness part of their family culture. And then the kids have experience with it such that it can perpetuate in the culture more seamlessly. Mm -hmm. I was thinking the other day as I was with my niece and she did 
kind of perfect yoga poses. <laughs> she was doing the happy baby. She did a downward dog at one point. Just how it's funny as adults, we're trying to get back to the ways our body naturally moved as yeah. toddlers and small children. And then we start sitting in chairs and just our bodies get all messed up, right? <laughs> I'm yeah. sure, you know, as we age, that's bound to happen, but we're not as flexible as a two-year-old anymore. But yep. it's kind of reminding me of the same thing is they are born and they come into this world having all of these really cool poses and positions that are good for your body and these stretches and these mindfulness techniques. And then over the course of school, basically, or just life, we unlearn them and then we're trying to relearn them again as adults. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I think, and this ties into your work so much, the idea of sensory awareness comes into play here, because I think that's the that's the space where we start to detach them from mindfulness is when we start to, like, detach them from their senses. And so as kids, I mean, they're designed, we're all designed to take in the world with our senses, right, and to just be really attuned to what we're what we're experiencing. And I think sometimes we inadvertently, right? Because as parents, we're all doing our best as aunts and uncles, we're all doing our best to just give them the space and um, like the support they need to grow. But sometimes in the process, we, we separate them from their sensory awareness. And then that kind of breaks that connection with the present. And I think there's so many people who are trying to regain, you know, and for you in terms of like nutrition and like being mindful of the taste and how you feel and what, you know, just looking at it from that lens of sensory input is so powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also crazy when you really tune into your senses that with nutrition, a lot of things you craved or you thought were your favorite aren't really as good as maybe you thought. So (laughs) I did that the other day. Uh, with a Reese's peanut butter cup, I really tuned into it. And then it wasn't as enjoyable. I thought I loved them, but it was kind of waxy and had a weird aftertaste. And I don't know, I mean, I'm definitely gonna have more in the future, but I'm not as excited to go out and eat one because it just didn't feel as worth it to me as something else like a homemade chocolate chip cookie or something feels like a more worth it treat to me now than kind of a waxy candy. Totally. Yeah. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. What about little kids? So I guess if a parent has a small child right now, what would be your tips for introducing mindfulness to them? And then maybe we could move through sort of like elementary age, middle school age, teenage years. Yeah. Yeah. So little kids, um, they're super sensory machines, right? I mean, like they're, they're trying to taste everything. 
Um, and so I love, you know, those little like mesh bags where you can put the, you know, fruit in it or whatever, and they can just kind of gum it. So once they're of an age where that's appropriate, you know, giving them a lot of different sensory experiences, so different textures that they can, you know, kind of gnaw on, um, different and then like smells just having having a sensory environment that's rich not overly so you know and being mindful of their sensory overload so if they if they are obviously like beyond the point not trying to like respecting that so that their like their senses are are honored so if they're if you're out you know and you're at a parade or a party and some you know it's really loud and they're having a hard time and just feeling completely overwhelmed you know, making some adjustments or accommodations to keep their relationship with their senses intact and in integrity with their experience. So if their senses are telling them they're overwhelmed, like giving them a little bit less sensory input so that they can just, you know, keep that relationship strong. And over time, right, they're going to edge into more areas and get more brave or, you know, be able to tolerate different levels of things. Um, I think this is especially important for like neurodiverse kids too, because for, for them, the sensory input is sometimes really different than what the adults that, that, that are caring for them, you know, experience. And so being able to work with that instead of fighting it, I think is important. So for little kids and then, yeah, giving them, I love like textures. So making sure their you know, their toys have different textures. I'm a big fan of Montessori for early childhood development because it has, you know, the grady graded cylinders where there's like tiny cylinders and then tiny bit bigger, tiny bit bigger, tiny bit bigger. But Montessori's theory is um, based a lot on sensory development for tiny kids. So the idea is that they look at the cylinder and they try to look with their eyes to see which one is the best match. And then as they're kind of playing with it and fitting this puzzle together, they notice like, oh, I was off there. This one is actually smaller than that one, but it seemed bigger or it just really gives them the chance to fine tune the way that they're interfacing with the world. So that for little kids, I think is key. For little kids, then it's mostly just kind of sensory touch, taste stuff for mindfulness. It's not so much the kind of speaking through feelings because they can't really conceptualize that yet. I mean, I, I do that. Like I, and I did that with my daughter and I think it's great. I think being able to talk through feelings, especially even with nonverbal kids, like, Oh, you're feeling so sad right now. I can tell you're not feeling good, but I'm not sure what's wrong with you. We're going to figure it out. And just working on that attunement. Like I think the communication is the thing that we can prioritize then, because if they know that their internal experience is important to us and like worthy of us listening to it, they're going to be more uh, attached and connected to it. And they're going to perpetuate the communication, right? They're going to try to say what they're thinking. They're going to try to say how they feel if they feel like we're listening. But I think definitely, I mean, when we get to like 18 months and two, when kids are more verbal, definitely that's when I start talking more about emotion and like naming emotion and helping kids understand what emotion, you know, they're feeling in that moment. And sometimes it's challenging because as parents, a lot of us were taught that certain emotions were bad or wrong, or you got in trouble for them. And in current parenting, the practice is more like being able to sit comfortably with your child in whatever emotion they're feeling. Um, And so being able to have a, a high tolerance for whatever emotion is kind of coming up and using that emotion as information And then, you know, creating space for it. So at first when they're little, right, we're just naming the emotion and giving them the vocab for it. And then around about like seven, six or seven, depending on the child, we can start to leverage the information, like use it 
to understand the situation, to understand like how the child interacted with someone, you know, it didn't say they are with a friend and they're feeling really angry because their friend took their toy and their friend's feeling upset because then, you know, your child hit them after they took the toy. So we can start to kind of walk through that and help them develop empathy. One of the things I do with kids starting around age like six-ish is do an empathy flashlight. So we'll be like, okay, what was going on with you? Why did you feel like you needed to hit hit your friend? What was, you know, what was that? And the child would usually say like, well, they took my toy and I was, I was mad and I wanted my toy back. Like, okay, so you were angry that your toy had been taken and you thought that hitting was the best way to do it, or you just didn't know what else to do. So you hit them because you were so angry and the anger just kind of came out of you that way. And then they'll, you know, they can connect with that. And then they'll, we'll say like, okay, let's shine the flashlight on the other child. Like, why did they take the toy? So shine your empathy flashlight on them and let's have empathy for them. And they're like, well, maybe because they didn't have anything else to play with. Or, you know, maybe it was because they had it first and then they started playing with something else and I took it, you know, and kids are surprisingly, you know, we, when we hit the right developmental stage with this, they are really able to dive into it, you know, and to understand what just happened. And, but if we just start getting mad at them for hitting the other kid and send them to their room, we don't get any of that information, Hmm. right? We get none of it, but if we can help them understand. So right now you had anger, you had more anger than you knew what to do with. So we need to figure out some things for you to do when you feel really angry. What would be something you could do that would help you still be friends? Because when you hit your friends, it makes it hard to be friends sometimes. So after apologizing, let's think about what, what are some things we could do when you are feeling like anger is just overflowing out of you? How could we, how could we send that anger somewhere else that's not towards someone living? Um, and they, you know, they can problem solve and brainstorm. But if we come at them with super high emotion in that moment and just get angry, we miss out on so much. Mm. So yeah, definitely, definitely conversations around emotion, helping them understand, helping them work with it. And I think that idea of like helping them work with emotion extends into, you know, like their 11 year old ish years, just that self-awareness. If they can go into their teen years with self-awareness, they're going to have an easier time connecting with other kids, knowing what's going on when their hormones kick in, they're feeling overwhelmed about school, their social circle is the most important thing. And that's a train wreck. You know, they're just like all the things they're going through, they'll have the awareness that they need to process it in a way that's more skillful than if they're just like totally at the mercy of whatever emotion is coming their way and can't even describe it. What you were just describing in that example then would be kind of the three keys of mindfulness with that kind of seven to 11 year old. So it's, how do you feel inside anger? Then shining the empathy flashlight of kind of the external, what's going on around you type of thing. And then making the choice uh, or what did you call it? A purposeful choice? Yeah. Making a choice on purpose. Oh, making a choice on purpose. Okay. So making a choice on purpose of kind of how can we course correct next time, next time and do something different than hitting. So that's yeah. just kind of working that through. Yeah, exactly. Okay, interesting. And doing it without judgment, right? Like there wasn't, we, and we can say like, you know, and for some kids, if, they, if they're not kind of quick to understand that that wasn't a good choice, we can kind of point it out, you know, in, in other terms and say like, we, we can't hit our friends or this isn't something, you know, that we do in our family or whatever, whatever phrasing we use, if they don't kind of in, intuit after the conversation that this was not good. But I think that when we can approach it with a level of neutrality with them and just think of it as an opportunity to learn, 
that we end up with like so much more in terms of connection with our kid, but then also in terms of their ability to take something from that situation. Because if we just scream at them and get frustrated, they kind of go into fight, flight, freeze, or faint mode, right? And they're stressed out and they're not learning then. And so if we can just make it kind of a smooth road, I always talk about how nowadays diffusing a conversation is winning a conversation. Mm. So we don't need to be like power over winning something with our kids. We can just, if we can diffuse it and help them learn, then we've won, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the win now. What if it's a sort of tantrum in the grocery store and it's not feeling like there's time to kind of like go through this process and there's, and you, maybe you have other kids. I mean, what do you do in that circumstance? Yeah, it's such a great question. So again, you, as parents, we practice our own mindfulness first, right? And so if I'm looking at the situation and I'm like, okay, right now I'm feeling really triggered. I'm embarrassed because my kid is throwing a tantrum in the middle of the store. I'm frustrated because I just need to get the groceries and get home. And I'm feeling like it's been a really long day and I'm overwhelmed already. And I've got these other kids here. I've got to, you know, wrangle to the car too. Um, Those are all the things like I can have empathy for myself because there's a ton that I have going and this is a lot to manage. And then what's going on around me is that my kid is having a tantrum. There's a couple more things I absolutely have to grab before we go. And so right now I need to get us through a few more aisles of the store and help my child kind of settle. So that's the first step, right? So if I realize that my child is not in a place where they can have like a coherent conversation, that's definitely like my mindfulness is the primary one there to say like, okay, no, this isn't the right time for me to problem solve or troubleshoot. And a lot of times if kids are past the point of, there's like this window, right? Where you can see the, the, like the meltdown building and there's a point you can intervene and kind of maybe like change the trajectory. And then there's a point where it's like, they're past it. Right. And you just have to acknowledge this is what's going on. So in that situation, I would say something like, it looks like you are having some really big feelings right now. And I can tell that you're really angry that I wouldn't buy you that ball. And that is hard because that ball looks super fun, really, really fun. And I'm sure you'd have a great time playing with it. But right now that's not something we're going to be putting in our cart. So the next thing that we need to do is buy, you know, get this. And if, if you want, I can put you in the cart so that you can just ride the rest of the way, or you can hold my hand and walk, which would you prefer? And a lot of times it's kind of like, if you think about the ocean and the waves are like really crashing and it's um, like, you've got these big waves. If you can be more mellow water so that their emotional waves can kind of get tempered by your even Mm. water that's what you're trying to do in that moment, right? It's not going to, they're probably still going to scream or kick, or you might like gently lift them into the cart and say like, right now, since, since you haven't made a choice, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to put you in the cart. Cause I think that would be the quickest way for us to get home. And it seems like you really want to get home and be comfortable or do something, you know, play with your ball at home. So let me do that. I'm going to do that. It might be uncomfortable and scary for you because you're kind of having a hard time right now, but we're going to, we're going to get through this, you know, and then you like put them in the cart gently and then you go finish your stuff. But sometimes when we, you know, are faced with strong emotion from our kids, it escalates our emotion and then escalates their emotion and our emotion. And like, we just build on it. So if we can envision like this big wave of emotion coming from our kids, if we can envision ourselves as like that mellow water and absorb the wave, then we're going to have an easier time. And then we can address it later, right? We can talk through it at a later time, if that's appropriate, but mm-hmm. at the time, like, just be gentle with yourself. Cause it's going to be, it's always embarrassing, right? When kids, <laughs> when kids are like having a meltdown in public. So know that you're not alone. Right. 
and then just work through it in the the way that's like the quickest way to move through what you need to move through and that honors you know both of you i think that's a really important point too that you said of put your mindfulness first it's almost like put your oxygen mask on mm-hmm. first type of thing yeah and so to realize the more you practice this yourself the more you can probably snap into that exactly. and be the calm wave Mm-hmm. Um, in any such, even with a spouse or, you know, anybody, yeah. it, everybody can kind of trigger us to get more upset. And then the other person, like people yep. can't see our hands right now, but everybody just kind of escalates. Yeah. And yep. then it's never helpful to say something like, oh, you just need to calm down or, right. you know, why are you getting so upset? I mean, that's not ever helpful. So if you can just kind yeah. of approach it in a way where you're saying, more calm, acknowledging the other person's feelings, but the negotiation is never going to happen in that heightened feeling mode, right? Whatever the feeling is. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And recognizing, yeah, like now's not the time to negotiate. Now's the time to, you know, fill in the blank, whatever you need to do. But I think one of the things that, and meditation is key for this, you can do it with mindfulness, but I find that meditation brings it a little bit quicker is that being patient, right? And just like, this is what's going on there. My child is not doing this because they are out to get me or they want to embarrass me. Like we've both just hit a point where we're feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling overwhelmed because I have a lot to do. And I have a kid having a tantrum in the middle of Smith's and you know, they're feeling overwhelmed because it's been a long day for them you know, they found this thing that they really wanted and they felt like it would be great for me to buy it. And I'm not going to, so just no judgment, but we're all just overwhelmed right now. Let's be as patient as we can, as we figure out how to move forward, like how to make a choice on purpose from here. Uh And it seems, I mean, as I'm framing it, it's nobody wins, right? If everybody's heated and screaming and going nuts. And so the way to kind of win that situation is to try to stay as calm as possible. And which is hard. I think that's hard in any conflict to be trying to take deep breaths and be patient and understand that the other person's feelings are coming from somewhere, however irrational you may think they are yourself, but to just kind of breathe and everybody wins when things don't escalate, I feel. Yeah, no, totally for sure. And, And I think in that moment too, it's important to recognize that because this is a way of parenting that isn't necessarily the norm historically, you could be in that grocery store with like a a sweet little lady, you know, who parented back in the sixties looking over at you and like, kind of like, you know, judging you or you may feel a lot of different things in that moment, right. As you try to engage with your child in that really gentle, mellow way. And that's another way, like your mindfulness comes online because like, okay, my conversation is not with this lady who's obviously judging me because they think I'm letting my kid get away with this. Right. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no getting away in that moment. It's just like what you said. I'm just choosing not to escalate. And that's what this looks like right now. I'm wondering, so as you described, you know, this is maybe a different philosophy of parenting versus parenting in the 60s. Is there research that suggests if you take this more kind of mindful approach, the hitting behavior eventually stops or the tantrums eventually stop versus the more kind of punitive parenting? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the powerful thing, right? Because what what we're doing in that moment is bringing awareness, right? So the research shows, and there are so many different studies that are um, bringing, it's like shining a light on all the scientific benefits of mindfulness. It's so fun. But the research shows that like this increased awareness 
leads eventually to emotional regulation. It allows us to focus our attention because we're not focused on all the things, right? We just isolated, like I'm going to focus on what's going on within me, what's going on outside of me, and then make a choice. So I'm, I'm zeroing in on like some certain sensory input right now. And then I'm going to let go of anything else. I'm going to put my focus and attention there and get creative and problem solve. And the result of being able to do that is emotional regulation, right? So a child who has all of this flying at them and feels completely overwhelmed and doesn't know what to do with it, of course, they're acting out. Of course, they're throwing a tantrum. Of course, they're hitting their brother because they're like flooded, right? Like with emotion that they don't know what to do with. But when we can teach them to notice it and then channel it, they don't have the need for it. Like they don't like being out of control either, right? Mm -hmm. So when we can teach them and then help them channel the emotion, that's where the emotional regulation comes online. And we get a totally different mindset. Um, One of the moms I was talking to the other day, her son, he just had anger like flying out of him. Um, And I worked with him several years ago. And he just all the time would just have like, he was just so mad. And when we kind of dove into it, one of the things that was going on for him is he was completely like beating himself up constantly in his head like constantly. So he was like worried he wasn't going to do well on a test. And then he would have a hard time on a test. And then it would reinforce his belief that he didn't do well on tests. And then he'd be worried about the next test. And then that meant that he wasn't good and smart. And he was dumb because he didn't do good on the test. So like all those thoughts are in his head, right? And he's trying to just like make it through his everyday life. And then his brother comes along and shoves him. He's going to lose it, right? Because he's already like up to here with like being, you know, beating up on himself. And then is, you know, just one more thing, like throws it over over the top. And so when he, what we did is we started to talk through like, okay, what, what are the messages you're sending yourself? What do you need to ignore? What do you need to pay attention to? And so we started having more supportive thought processes and those like ruminating thoughts that were negative started to fade. And so then his capacity for other stuff, like increased tenfold, right? Because he wasn't like adding to the problem in his brain. He was now like, you know, increasing his capacity because there was kindness and gentleness for himself there. And there wasn't this like overload of negativity. But like, if you think about the flip side of that, he, you know, he was fortunate to have a mom who was super empathetic and understanding and could see like, he's a good kid, right? And he just was having to struggle. But if we, if we then like add to the burden for that kid, And we're like, why are you always, you know, like, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're your brother again. He didn't do anything to you. It's the worst. Could you go to your room? And again, like with all the gentleness and patience for all parents everywhere, because parenting is a hard job. But like, we can see how like the emotional regulation capacity of that child, it only increases if we help them be mindful about what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. Right. If we just add to the emotional burden for them, like they're going to keep hitting. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to keep being overwhelmed. They're going to keep not knowing like what to do with all this emotion that's flowing through them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I guess, yeah, my next question would be if, or I guess for somebody listening, let's say they're thinking, yeah. okay, you're helping them emotionally regulate, but throughout the process, let's say they're still hitting until they yeah. get to that point where they are emotionally regulated and they can channel their anger into a more productive pathway. Is there also some form of consequence built in as well to the emotional regulation? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay. Yeah. We don't, and we don't want to just like, let kids freewheel it. Right. Necessarily. (laughs) We help them, we help them understand, but like, what are the natural consequences to you hitting someone? Like, does that, 
you know, like, does that person want to be around you anymore? Does that, does that person feel safe by you? Does that person feel, you know, and then again, like if we need to have them have some space and, you know, go to their room or do something else, but we don't just do that thing. Got it. Right. Like if we're like, it looks like you might need some space right now to process what you're feeling. And it seems like it's, um, it's a little bit tricky for you to be around people right now because you're, you're hitting. So why don't you take a minute and you, you find a space that works for you to kind of settle down and, you know, you could tell them to go to their room, whatever, but let's find a space you can settle down so that we can have a conversation after, you know, when everybody's feeling a little bit more comfortable. Got it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely not a matter of just kind of letting them take it and run with it. But like for kids who get angry a lot, I like to use punching bags. So I love to like, I'll send the kids I work with a punching bag and they'll, so like when you're angry, don't hit a living thing. Like nothing living gets that anger. So not the dog, the plants, the people, but like a punchy bag that can take it. So don't use your people as a punching bag, use a punching bag. Hmm. So like over time, they're still going to hit, right? Because they're kids and they're learning to like discipline themselves. They're, they don't have the capacity yet for self-discipline. And um, so it's not a function of like, and then tomorrow when you practice mindfulness, all of this will go away. Right. <laughs> but it's like a slow roll over time where you see the behavior less and less and less, and then they get more and more amenable to the conversations. Huh. Um, and that's usually what we see. And it takes different amounts of time for different kids, but the overall effect is that you can talk through it more easily as you practice mindfulness than you can if you don't. And like you said, what tools then you have going into your teenage yeah. years and adult life, of emotional regulation. And I, as you're saying this, I'm thinking, especially probably with boys who are often just kind of stereotypically taught to stifle emotion. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's so important that we give boys the tools to understand what they're feeling and to accept and honor what they're feeling and to really welcome it. Because as a society, I think we're still working on giving boys that space. And so if they don't have it in school or in the other spaces they occupy, and then they don't have it at home either, it is a lot of times just like flying out of them in in different ways. Like it's kind of like holding a beach ball underwater or trying to, like you never know where it's going to pop up. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That is very challenging for sure. (laughs) It's a fun game, fun game to play in the pool, but very hard to keep it underwater. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I love that. I think it means to recognize and honor the inherent relationship between our health, again, like our mental, emotional, and physical health, and then our ability to live fully. Like recognizing the relationship between those two things, I think is Hmm. what the health investment is. And I'm so appreciative for you sharing those three keys of mindfulness. I love anything that I can kind of visualize or that's tangible. And I have this kind of whole new view of it's what's inside, what's outside and to make a choice with purpose. I love that so much. Where can listeners follow and find you and learn more? I know you have a podcast, so I'd love for you to share more about that. But just essentially, where are you on the social media and out in the world? Yeah, thank you. I'm at the stress nanny on Instagram. And then my podcast is the stress nanny with Lindsay Miller. And then my website is the stress nanny. So you can find me in any of those places. Um, I love to share tools for families to use to just make mindfulness easy to implement and playful and fun and like a little less hectic than trying to get your kid to sit and just breathe. And I'm sure if somebody's heard this and they're thinking, I need more of this in my life, then they go to your podcast and this is your focus. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. It, the focus of the podcast is yeah sharing tools and then interviewing guests who can help kind of shift our thinking around some of these conversations we're having with our kids or in our home to give ourselves like a different perspective on how to handle moments like that, you know, like we described. So the guests that I share, uh, the guests that I invite share things that have worked for them, share their area of expertise to help families move through stressful situations or everyday situations with more ease. Wow. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy we connected, Lindsay. It's been great chatting with you. And I look forward to going and searching your podcast and learning more about mindfulness myself. And I don't have any kids yet, but with nieces and nephews, I'm, you know, (laughs) any kids around or spouses, anybody, I feel like we can all benefit. So thank you so much for the wisdom you shared with us today. Yeah. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.